amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. This podcast covers a variety of topics for you who are interested in current events, history, and books. I especially enjoy bringing attention to authors and books that you might not have heard of yet. Sometimes they're only popular regionally, and those who need a bump that I can provide through exposing them to a national listening audience, and I'm really, really happy to do it. I'm the host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. We're a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media presence. Not only do I offer services, but I offer training to those who prefer to handle their accounts personally. I appreciate your tremendous feedback, and please keep the suggestions for future episodes coming. Shoot me an email at Delilah at ImaginePublicity.com or through my website contact form at ImaginePublicity.com. Well, today is is another an exciting author, another exciting book from Wild Blue Press. I love doing these author interviews and especially for the authors at Wild Blue Press because they uh, are just such a really, really cool organization. Um, today the book is called Shots in the Dark, the Saga of Rocco Bolero, and it's written by Daniel Zimmerman. The story of Rocco Bolero, a petty criminal enforcer for New England crime boss Raymond L. Patriarca, played out in glaring headlines across the country following the shootout with Boston police. Had he heeded the commands of the cops to drop his weapon, Rocco would not have spent the next 50 years behind bars, and his girlfriend and her son might still be alive today. Instead, he fired the gun erupting death and mayhem in the apartment. In the aftermath of the shootings, all fingers pointed at Rocco, but he would maintain his innocence in the death of his girlfriend and her son for the rest of his life, though plagued with lingering questions. Welcome, Daniel Zimmerman. Hey, Delilah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Let's start out with, can you go through a brief personal background? Who are you? Well, I am a um, 58-year-old individual. I, uh, I live in the Boston area in a little suburban town about 30 minutes north of the city. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts entirely. Um, uh, I've, I've worked basically in two different careers my entire lifespan. Uh, first, I was a, 
uh, an EMT, an emergency medical technician, and a 911 dispatcher for about 25 years, uh, which has uh, obviously many stories that go with that. And then, uh, then later on, uh, when I turned uh, 40, I switched careers, and, and uh, today I work for a um, major Boston area uh, gas utility. Um, and I'm at, obviously at the age of 58, I'm nearing retirement. I've got the, a number of years left. Um, during the course of that uh, that work span, I also um, started to write as a stringer for a number of uh, area newspapers. Uh, high school sports was my specialty. I would cover an assortment of uh, high school sports um, throughout the area. Um, and I do, I do that today. Uh, on any given day during the week, you can find me standing on the sideline somewhere or a hockey rink. Um, I'm self-taught as far as writing. Um, all through the years, and when I was a teenager, I would uh, I would write uh, stories, um, and as a 14 and 15 year old, try to publish and find out very quickly that it's a very difficult process. Um, this uh, I'm married 30 34 years. I hope I get that number right. 34 years. I have a, a daughter who's uh, 32, and two grandchildren, um, and that's pretty much my my. Uh, personal biography um so you started writing at a pretty young age and was this kind of always in the back of your mind as something that you would like to do when maybe the career settled down yeah actually in high school um i, I favored certain courses that were available uh obviously uh, creative writing classes i signed up for for everyone every opportunity i had to to take a class or get involved in some aspect of, of creative writing, I would do that. I wrote science fiction stories. That seemed to be my favorite as a kid. Um, and I actually, uh, you know, I came close to actually publishing as a 15-year-old, but I think the uh, the magazine involved at the time found out I was 15 and uh, and decided to not take on the uh, not take on the project. But yeah, from a very early age, uh, I uh, I started to write all through high school. I was um, Fairly successful with my with those type of classes and courses, English, creative writing, whatever it may be. I always uh, excelled as as a writer and kind of knew in the back of my mind it might be something I could do later on in life. Yeah, and that's, they say everyone has a story to tell. And mm-hmm. what was it about the Rocco Bolero story that? kind of brought you in what was it that about this story that made you want to write this book well actually Delilah I was uh, I, I guess you could say I'm part of the story um, this took place in in the early 60s um, the two victims in the in the story um, were my aunt and my cousin um, I was two three years old at the time so obviously I don't remember it as you know, as, as, because I was a child, but I did grow up with the story. Uh, many of my family members would, through the years, would share with me um, information, um, recall of of what took place on those days in the early '60s. And and again, I grew up with the story. When I started to write these um, these uh, sports stories for the newspapers, and you know, people would say. Um, you're, you're a pretty good writer. You should you should do some more. I, I thought maybe I should write the Rocco Bolero story. And, uh, and about uh, eight years ago, um, I decided to 
uh, start looking into it. Start researching and speaking more, um, just getting more involved in the, in the, uh, the information uh, that was available to me at the time. Um, so it is something, because of the fact that you were related to the victims in this story, so it mm-hmm. was something that you, I mean, did you know a lot about it growing up, or was it just kind of a fringe discussion with family members, and, and how? Well, what I were mean, their thoughts about it? Probably the, uh, obviously, the, uh, the person who uh, uh, would talk to me about it more than anybody else would be my mother, because... Um, uh, the victim in the story, my aunt Toby, um, she, Toby actually was uh, close friends with my mother through high school and uh, introduced her to who would soon become my father. It was uh, Toby's Toby's older brother. So my mother would talk to me uh, at length. Sometimes we'd sit and chat about it, and, and she'd tell me what she knew. But um, I would later find out when I really delved into this, this book and, and and started to interview uh, Rocco, that the story I was being told wasn't entirely accurate. Um, And it it really didn't take long for me to find that out once I started to uh, make my twice-weekly trips to the prison to uh, have discussions with Rocco. Um, So it's kind of like, you know, most family, family legends, I guess you might say, that information gets embellished or gets a little twisted in the retelling and retelling over the years. And, and I'm imagine that you had to kind of sort through all of this and sort out what, what can be proven and what couldn't be proven. You know, it's funny you say that because uh, recently wild blue press, they asked me to, uh, to start writing a, a couple of blogs that would, uh, that they would use um, as their social media angle and one of the blogs I wrote said exactly that, that, uh, you know, the story had, had changed over time and had kind of uh, had a life of its own. Um, and, and obviously um, my family, because my family, the, the victims were my family, their lean was towards, um, I guess you could say, a guilty Rocco Bolero. And that's was that was my belief. And as, as a matter of fact, when I first decided to do this book, um, I was going to write the story of a cold-blooded killer. Um, that was my thought. That was what I what I had been told through the years by uh, many people in my family. And when I first went to the prison to visit him, the initial visit, um, I thought I was going to be speaking with a cold-blooded killer who murdered my aunt and my two-year-old cousin. And uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Well, let's let's kind of set the stage here for listeners to kind of understand what's going on. Walk us through the crime, you might say. What was the atmosphere back in, I think, what, this 1963 that this happened? Uh, yeah, 1963. The, um, right. From 62 to 63 was kind of the the entire story took place within a six seven month span. Um, basically, what, what was taking place was my aunt. Um, she was 21 years old, and her husband was incarcerated. And I guess you could say, you know, to, to put it to put it politically correct, she was lonely. She had two kids, a two year old son and a six month old daughter. 
um, and she was lonely, so she would venture out either with friends or by herself to just to to be with people, adults, people of her own age. And she, um, one of the areas in Boston back in the 60s, and it persisted through the 80s, was a place called the Combat Zone. Uh, it's well known in this in this area, and it's basically the uh, the city's red light district. Um, and at the time, there were a lot of um, lounges, uh, clubs, and you know the movers and shakers in the in the underworld were were typically the owners of these these um, these places. And so she ventured into one, and um, that was known frequented by a lot of underworld characters. And she met Rocco Bolero, um, who was basically just hanging out with his friends and family in one of these clubs. And over a course of time, they, they a very short time, actually, they fell for each other. And uh, it, it was quickly, um, the relationship blossomed quickly, and Rocco uh, ended up moving in with her, in her into her apartment. Um, in the midst of this, uh, Rocco Bolero was, I describe him as a petty criminal. He was kind of involved in some thefts, um, he, his favorite was a jewelry, stealing jewelry, um, breaking into different stores. I mean, he admitted that there was never any, you know, he never avoided, uh, the, the truth that he was, you know, into certain crime. Um, but it was at that level that never escalated to anything more than just, uh, petty crimes and, uh, supporting himself and his family. Um, so, one night, him and a, uh, and a a partner decided to uh, rob a fur store. Um, furs were extremely popular in those days and expensive. And they liberated a, a store in a, in a city called Brookline of um, a couple hundred women's furs. Um, when he finally got to the point where he was going to, uh, to fence these furs to, get, to give them uh, to some, some mafia folks, um, they were arrested. During the uh, while driving the furs to a location in Providence, Rhode Island, um, he ended up in jail. He had a he had been in jail previously a number of times, so uh, he was uh, taken to prison basically almost right away. Um, and while he was there, my aunt Toby visited with him, and this is when things really started to kind of turn uh, for Rocco. Um, she assisted him in uh, escaping. Um, I won't go into the, the entire details because it would probably run this call to three hours, <laughs> but <laughs> she did uh, facilitate his escape from, from a jail. Um, when he got out, he gathered her and the children and made his way to a, an, another apartment, a hideaway that his family had provided. And uh, not too long after that escape is when word came down that Toby's husband was about to be released from from jail, and as you might guess, um, bad things started to happen at that point. So, once her husband got out of jail, how uh, how did Toby explain all of this other relationship, or was it ever really explained? And what type of was there a lot of animosity between the two men? Um, oh, certainly there was. Uh, uh, her husband had learned about the affair while he was in jail, and, and obviously he wasn't in, wasn't in a position to do anything about it uh, until he he got out. At that point, um, 
uh, Toby decided that she would ask for a divorce. Uh, her her choice was to uh, stay with Rocco, um, and and the two of them, along with the kids, would try to make a life for themselves. Um, there wasn't a lot of thought about the fact that he was an escaped convict and that the uh, authorities were looking for him uh, fairly diligently. They were trying to uh, to get him back, um, but that was that was in the back of their minds. What what they needed to do was resolve the uh, the the husband issue. So um, they agreed. Rocco agreed that Toby should you know seek the divorce. Uh, she left one morning, took the kids with her so that they could say more or less say goodbye to their father, and she made her way out. Um, quite some time went by, uh, and Rocco hadn't heard from her. He was concerned. So he gathered um, his brother and, and a third man. They armed themselves um, and went in search of Toby. Um, and when the when they uh, got to the home where he thought she was being held by her husband against her will, um, they bus- busted into this apartment, and they were engaged in a pretty furious gun battle. Um, all the while that they were shooting their guns, Rocco was under the impression that he was engaging a, in a gun battle with uh, Toby's husband and, and the couple of guys that he was running with when in fact it was the Boston police. They were, um, they were staked out in the apartment. They darkened it so you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And um, as a matter of fact, in the uh, Boston police report, it was so dark in this apartment that the cops said they were shooting at gun flashes. They weren't even sure who they were shooting at. And obviously Rocco um, had the same situation. He thought he was shooting at... Uh, uh, engaging in a gun battle with Toby's husband, and uh, and in fact, that wasn't the case. So what happened after, you know, as this gun battle is going on, what happens next after everything is all over? What Did the police well, arrest him at that point, or did he get away? No, no. The, well, this is where the, the, the huge twist in the story takes place. They, Rocco and his associates ran out of the apartment and headed for a getaway car. And as they were running, they listened. They could hear more gunshots coming from the apartment. And obviously the police were still in there. They had reloaded their weapons and were shooting again at basically each other. Um, during the course of this, my Aunt Toby had picked up my cousin Mark. They were hiding, hiding in the back of the apartment and they ran towards the front when they thought it was safe. They, the, the gunfire had ceased for a few minutes, or a few seconds, I should say. And so as they ran towards the front of the apartment, it was at that point that the police started firing again. Uh, Rocco was on the sidewalk making, a way, making his way towards a, uh, a getaway car. So he, he actually said to his brother, he says, who the hell are they shooting at? They're shooting again. Who are they shooting at? We're not even there. And um, unfortunately, uh, in the midst of that second round of uh, gunfire, uh, my aunt Toby was shot in the head, and my cousin Mark was shot in the abdomen. And uh, eventually they both passed away. Uh, Rocco did escape. He was gone for a few days, um, but his brother um, suggested that he turn himself in and, and, uh, and face the legal, legal music, so to speak. And so he turned himself in? 
Yeah, he eventually turned himself in. His brother turned himself in. They, they all um, they all turned themselves over to the to the uh, police department. And, uh, what was the what was the police department stand on all of this as to what happened and and were there any officers injured in in all of this gunfire? No, uh, actually, uh, when they removed the bullets from the walls of this apartment, they found forty forty slugs, and not a single one hit any police officer or rock owners or two two associates. Um, what what took place soon after this this event this. Um, this insane shooting in this apartment was the Boston police uh, tried to uh, doctor a witness, uh, tried to sidestep the the media coverage. They were they were basically um, under huge fire from their own uh, internal department as well as the media, newspapers, uh, television, and and one of the reasons, and I and I did kind of outline it in the book. One of the reasons they were taking such heat was because during the, this event was the same time that the Boston Strangler was on his run. Uh, he eventually killed, raped and killed 13 women in the city. And at the point of these, when these shootings took place, uh, they had, he had progressed through eight. He was about halfway through his serial killing run. Um, and the Boston Police Department, as a result of that, their, their inability to capture the Boston Strangler and, and stop this um, stop the serial killing was that they were they were pretty inept um, throughout the city. They, they had a reputation of being a rather inept police force in the '60s, and uh, solving crimes wasn't one of their specialties. Um, so they didn't need any added negative press. And the, the Rocco Bolero shooting certainly added to their, I guess you could say, their miseries. Um, so they sought to kind of um, find a way to to dampen uh, the story, dampen what took place. And uh, it just seems they, amazing that after out of all of those bullets. Only two people were killed, and it and, and just did the uh, backing up a minute. Did the yes. police officers know that Toby and her son were in the apartment? Yeah, as a matter of fact, that was one of the uh, the things that they took a, a huge beating for in the newspapers. They they had gone to this apartment. Um, they had they learned that uh, Rocco might be coming there, and obviously he was a trophy, uh, an escaped uh, escaped felon. Here's an opportunity for three Boston police officers to uh, to become, I, I guess you could say, heroes by capturing this uh, this elusive uh, uh, convict. This, um, so they set up the, the stakeout. It was not sanctioned by the department. They did it on their own. Um, and it was a cold night. It was in February, and it was a really cold night. So what they, they didn't want to do was put um, Toby, her two kids, in addition, the owner of the apartment, a woman named Mary Adams, had three children. So you're talking two young women, five children. Um, they they just didn't have the means, I guess, to put them somewhere safe. So they kept them in the apartment, knowing that uh, somebody was coming, potentially armed, and potentially, you know, an event that would, that would trigger shooting um, or some type of violence. Uh, but they kept them in the apartment. They had them in the in the back rooms, um, kind of kind of tucked away, but st- certainly not in a place where they would be safe. 
Um, and, and they took a lot of heat for that. that. That was a huge mistake on their part. Yeah, I, I should definitely say so, and well-deserved heat. Um, so, okay, so this whole shooting takes place. Rocco gets away, and mm-hmm. yep. then he turns himself in. Did he did he have to go to trial? What What became of him next? Yeah, he did turn himself in, and he did go to trial. It was the typical um, courtroom drama with... You know, uh, they Rocco had some good lawyers at his disposal, um, and they certainly helped him um, attempt to beat the case. Basically, what Rocco said, and he said this to me during interviews at the prison, that he fully admits to triggering the chain of events that that led to Toby and Mark's deaths. Um, but he said he didn't pull the trigger that killed them. Uh, he knows he did wrong. He says, you know. One of the things he said, Dan, had I known there were police in that apartment, I wouldn't have come within 100 miles of that place. Uh, that would have been, that that's crazy. I would never have done something like that. I was going there to rescue Toby. I loved her. Um, and I thought that her husband was causing, was going to bring harm on her for her decision to leave him. So I went there to try to rescue her, to, to get her away from that situation. And I had no idea there were police there. Uh, so he faced a lot of legal dancing um, over the the next couple of years. Uh, Ultimately, because his brother was with him and and a third uh, gentleman, um, they they each had children. His brother just uh, had a newborn, and the other gentleman had a couple of kids. And so one of the attorneys, a family attorney, actually a cousin of the Bolero family, um, kind of twisted Rocco's arm a little bit, coerced him into taking a plea deal that would, uh, the judge had agreed if Rocco accepted the plea deal during all the the court maneuverings, that his brother uh, would get out after just a 10-year manslaughter charge and be able to spend time with his new new child. Um, Rocco at first resisted. He just didn't want any part of that because by, by agreeing to that deal, he would have to admit to first-degree murder, which he he just didn't want to do that. He wasn't a murderer. He he didn't pull the trigger that killed anybody, um, and he just didn't want to go down that road. But um, his cousin, uh, the attorney, was very influential, and eventually uh, Rocco relented and gave in and um, took the deal. Um, it's unfortunate. I, I actually, during the course of my research, I talked to an attorney um, that dealt in cases like this. And he said to me that for Rocco to uh, take a plea deal of first-degree murder basically was admitting to the crime. Um, And he would face life in prison and never see the light of day. And even though Rocco was, during the coercion from his his attorney, um, was told that, you know, we'll bring this back to court. We'll we'll find a way to get you out in a short amount of time. And... uh, that obviously didn't take place. So he was sentenced for murder, first-degree murder, life in prison. Exactly. Yeah. Back in 1965 was the final, the final trial uh, after they agreed to the the plea bargain. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. As a matter of fact, in the early days, in the early 60s, um, Massachusetts doesn't have the uh, death penalty, uh, but it did at one time. And the initial 
thought with the prosecuting attorneys was to give Rocco the death penalty. So there was a chance, outside as it is, um, that he might face the death penalty for a murder he didn't commit. Um, and eventually uh, the death penalty went the, uh, uh, was, was uh, banned from the state and uh, he was switched to life in prison. So in, in after this all happened, was there ever a time when it was realized that this man was wrongfully convicted? Um, very late. As time went on, Rocco um, actually collected, and this is where I took the turn. Um, like I had said earlier in our conversation, when I went to the prison on that first day, um, it, w- it was kind of interesting. I, um, I walked into what, what we call MCI Norfolk Prison, and they have a visiting center. So I, I sat in the visiting center and waited for him. Um, and obviously I knew what he looked like, but he didn't know what I looked like. So when I stood up, when he came into the room, he comes over to me and, and I reach out to shake his hand and the man hugs me. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm standing here hugging the man who killed my aunt and my cousin. And it only took a very, I'm going to say maybe two weeks, three at the most, of discussions with him, uh, discussions with his family members, um, collecting uh, information, paperwork. Things that he gave me were actually the uh, pivotal in the, in the whole decision that you know, he didn't do what everybody said he did, um, including some affidavits from uh, police investigators who found wrongful, you know, that their, their own offices were um, complicit in this whole thing. Um, and there were multiple tries uh, to, to exonerate Rocco, to get him out early, um, that each each one would fail because of the uh, that entire first-degree murder plea. Uh, that that would always come back to haunt him over the years as he got closer to, to a chance at parole. Um, and it was unfortunate that he agreed to that. It is, and, and and I'm sure you've researched wrongful convictions as well, and it seems to me that so many of them, so many people behind bars wrongfully convicted are there because they are coerced into a confession or taking a plea deal similar to what you've described for Rocco. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I agree totally. Um, we... My wife and I kind of teamed up um, as we got to know Rocco, and we got very close with his family as well over over the course of the years. Um, and we we tried to um, find way find means ourselves to to help him uh, get out to get early release from prison. In in fact, when he um, turned ill, he he developed cancer kind of late in the late in the uh, stage of this book. Um, then we, we tried to reach out to the governor of Massachusetts and the governor's council to see if they could, uh, if they would consider a, a, a commutation, an early release due to his illness and let him spend a, some time out on the, on the outside, um, before the disease claimed him. And oddly enough, in a, in a liberal state of Massachusetts, they, uh, they still wouldn't, uh, relent. They still wouldn't, um, do the right thing. Wow, but did um, did Boston police ever admit that they were wrong? Did and you you alluded to some of the officers uh, had no had... they 
No, it was one of those situations where um, the entire the entire night was more or less buried in some dark corner of their records room. Um, they, you know, they had some pretty good um, attorneys. Despite the findings of their own investigators, certain things took place. Uh, as you would imagine, uh, one of the first things they looked for was ballistics to see if they could uh, determine if it was, in fact, police bullets that killed them. Um, mysteriously, those uh, ballistics disappeared. Um, and I'm sure you know what I'm getting at at this point. Um, every every corner, every shred of evidence that anybody could could come up with uh, was conveniently or um, inconveniently for Rocco um, altered in some way. Uh, they also had a witness um, who they she was the other woman that was in the apartment at the time of the shootings. Her name was Mary Adams, and Mary Adams was. Um, I'll say allegedly at this point, but there's a lot of finger pointing at the police that she was uh, she was coached heavily. Uh, she was kept in custody for a couple of months on some drummed up drug charges, and while they had her, they had a chance to work with her. Um, her claim was was entirely wiped out in the courtroom, uh, thankfully, uh, but it really didn't help Rocco's case. Oh, I'm sorry. I had my oh, finger sorry. on the mute button. <laughs> it's no, my no fault. problem. I thought maybe <laughs> I, I thought maybe my my phone gave no. up on me. I wasn't sure how much power I had left on it. So. <laughs> no, it wasn't you. Um, okay. Okay. So you alluded earlier that at one point, and I'm, and I'm backtracking here in the story, and he was pretty good about escaping. Um, yeah, actually, he was. I mean, times he, in prison, right? Uh, he made actually three escapes in his career, and that, and that was one of the things, um, oddly enough, uh, as he uh, moved through his, I guess you could call it his prison career, um, he was getting closer to an opportunity to get out legitimately uh, via parole. Um, unfortunately, uh, he would restart the clock with, with escapes. One of the reasons he, uh, his first two escapes actually were facilitated by uh, number one, my Aunt Toby, who uh, smuggled in hacksaw blades, uh, believe it or not, and uh, he managed to use those hacksaw blades to cut through some old cast iron bars on his cell, and next thing you know, he's on the street. Um, he did that again at a, at a jail in Boston called the Charles Street Jail, um, which is today a fine hotel, um, but in those days it wasn't so fine, and he managed to do the same thing. He cut his way out um, and escaped. Uh, his third escape actually took place in 1980 while he was um, incarcerated at, a, at what we call MCI Bridgewater. It's kind of a uh, not a uh, hardcore type prison. Uh, in, in fact, they, uh, he, he had a, a job. He worked on the farm. He drove the tractor. So he was on the outside all day long. In addition, around those years, uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts decided they would uh, give um, – deserving inmates furloughs, give them opportunity to, to be out for the weekends. And Rocco got that opportunity. He actually spent time um, visiting with friends and family. He went to his brother's wedding. Um, but he got word that the furlough program 
maybe not for everybody, but for him might be curtailed. And it concerned him that he wouldn't be able to, to make those visits anymore, so he decided to walk away from jail and uh, escape. Um, and that escape um, restarted the clock, more or less. When they eventually captured him again, brought him back to Massachusetts, um, it was at that point that any thoughts of a, of a release, a parole, or anything of that nature would, uh, would go by the boards. He, he kind of uh, sealed his fate with that escape. Um, right. So it's it's you know by him escaping all of those times did he once he was convicted in this particular case was there any attempts to escape? Um, not no because he was uh, he was incarcerated in one of the most notorious prisons on the East Coast in a place called MCI Walpole, and uh, they they lay claim to having uh, no escapes. There was no way he was getting out of that prison as long as he was there. Um, right. Yeah, one of the one of the funny um, one of the side snippets to this whole thing was uh, during one of my visits with Rocco, he asked me. He says, "Are you concerned about coming into a prison like this to visit with me?" And I I would I said to him, "Actually, Rocco, um, no, because I've been in here multiple multiple times as an EMT. The 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 uh, ambulance outfit that I worked for at the time was responsible for transporting, treating, and transporting um, sick and injured inmates." And so I was constantly at the prison where he was held. And, you know, I, I knew of his existence, obviously, through my entire life. And during those years, going in and out of those prisons, I wondered if I would ever encounter this, this uh, individual or, or transport him to a hospital for some type of injury. It always crossed my mind every time I went through those doors. Um, so I told him I, I was very well versed in the uh, the ins and outs of of uh, entering and exiting prisons, and uh, not an issue. Right, that's real. That's really kind of an interesting story uh, because, as you said earlier, this this man was in your life for from a very very young age, maybe at a distance, but mm-hmm. he was in your life all all this time growing up, and you know, for for you to be in and out of that prison and, you know, wondering if you were ever going to run into him and then ultimately doing this book, it it kind of brings things full circle for you, right? Well, I mean, I, besides just going, uh, besides going into the prison uh, to do my job, um, I lived literally four miles from the prison. Um, I lived in a town at the time uh, called Norwood and uh, MCI Walpole was in the town of Walpole, and the two towns border each other. So not only did I grow up with the knowledge of him, but he lived. We lived literally four miles apart for all those years. And, That's uh, amazing. I always, yeah, yep. Yeah, it was uh, it was very interesting uh, for me. And well, you know, so when this, I finally this was a story that kind of it not fell into your lap, but it actually was something I would imagine that. It was in the back of your mind the whole time you were growing up that that to bring this to book form um, is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, I there was an early start to this book um, back in I'm going to say the year 2000 2001, where I thought about it and I actually what triggered it was an article in the Boston Globe. Uh, they they kept bringing back uh, the story 
obviously of interest in this in this area. Um, and that article was kind of tilted towards the Bolero family, um, and, and not my family. And like I said, in the early days before I actually met the man and started to research uh, what took place, I was of the belief that he was, you know, a, an actual murderer. And so to see this article in the Boston Globe and, and realize that, hey, th this right is not giving my family a fair shake, uh, I actually reached out to her. And, I, you know, I, I identified myself and I said, look, your story is, um, you know, I, I may not be a, uh, a, a you know, high-level reporter with the Boston Globe, but I do do some newspaper writing. And I, I understand, as a writer, you, you have to tell both sides of the story. And she failed to do that. And I kind of took her to task on it. So, so at that you, point, that's – I'm sorry? Can you take time to maybe – um, sort through some of the the facts from, I'm not going to say fiction, but misinformation. As you were growing up, you heard this, 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 and this, when it actually was this, 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 and this. Well, I mean, I told the story. I, as I mentioned, Rocco wasn't even in the apartment when the shootings took place. Uh, this, this, the, the story from the police side and obviously the prosecuting attorney was that uh, Rocco um, was upset that he, he thought in his mind that it was Toby that had um, tipped the police off that he was coming. Um, she actually warned him. I'm, I'm sure you, if you, you, as you read the book, you saw that. She tried to warn him and tell him to stay away. Um, but they they insisted and they, and again, doctored a witness to, to agree, agree with them that he was upset with her for allegedly calling the police and letting them know he was on his way. And when he got to the apartment, he shot her in the head and then shot Mark in addition. And that, that's so far from the truth. Um, uh, one of the things with the, uh, the, the key witness for the, prosecu for the prosecution was that they, uh, they asked her um, what she saw. And she said, I saw Rocco Bolero shoot um, Toby in the head, and I saw him shoot Mark in the stomach. And so the defense attorney on Rocco's side said, well, if the police claim that they were shooting at gun flashes and they couldn't see a thing in the apartment, how is it that you saw Rocco Bolero shoot them, you know, point blank? And obviously the uh, their case fell apart at that point. Uh, but the fact that Rocco was, you know, sometimes I hate to say it, but he was a known criminal. He had ties to the uh, organization, to the mafia. And with that, you're guilty um, just by association. And, and he knew that. He, he made those comments to me during one of our discussions that it's because of who I am. I'm, I'm going to go down for this because of who I am. And he, he was right. He was right. They, you know, he's uh, once a criminal, always a criminal. Did he ever reconcile with his fate? Uh, he did, actually. He in his early days in, in prison, he admitted to being uh, kind of a rabble-rouser. He got into some fights. Uh, he actually assaulted a corrections officer. Um, he spent a lot of time in solid, solitary confinement. As a matter of fact, one of his visits to solitary, uh, just to keep his mind on, his head on straight, he read an entire Webster's Dictionary front to back. Um, so, yeah, he did. And then later on in, in his prison career, he became a, um, uh, a, a preacher as part of the um, Dominican order. 
and began to uh, really express his his religious side. He had a, a group of 25 inmates that were part of his, uh, I guess you could call it a ministry, and he really got involved and he, you know, he sought forgiveness through that. That was his way to to seek forgiveness for some of the things he did in his life. That's interesting. It's, it seems that, I mean, everybody says you always find, you find God once you're in prison. And a mm-hmm. lot of people kind of laugh that off. But it's, you know, when you're stripped of everything and you're in solitary confinement or you're within a cell with very little communication to the outside world, what do, what do you have left? You know what I mean? Right, exactly. And that's that's and the point of the solitary. That they're trying to break you is what they try to do. Right. And, um, right. Solitary will definitely do that to you. Um, but he found a way to to um, sidestep it. The dictionary. He he loved to tell that story. And, and you know, oddly enough, um, I it, it helped his uh, his writing skills. Uh, he he became very. Uh, he wrote articles in the prison. He wrote obviously wrote me a lot of letters and. They were pretty eloquent, and I always attributed that to his uh, reading the dictionary a number of times and learning new words. That would definitely do it, right? Yeah. (laughs) So tell me, what is is your next project? Do you have another book on the table? Are you working on something? I do. I do. I am actually um, in the – I actually just started out. I'm working on my my, uh, proposal for Wire Blue. Um. It's a another Boston-based story, uh, very interesting. Uh, the the job I do uh, right now working for a utility is I, I see a lot of police officers, and most of them know of my project with the, the, the book on Rocco. And one of them I encountered not too long ago asked me if I uh, was interested in writing a story about a, a police killing uh, back in the early 80s. Um, a, a couple of off-duty police officers actually murdered a guy in a hotel, and they ended up doing um, long stretches of time in prison. Um, and, and basically at that time, it was the first time that any police officer was convicted of first-degree murder and imprisoned uh, after this case. Uh, but the place it took, the, the, the location it all took place is notorious uh, in, in this area. It was a place called King Arthur's Lounge and Hotel. And that's the, the primary story of this this lounge, but there's so much other, uh, so much else that took place at this location that I, I think it would be a great story to tell. It sounds like it. And do you have any idea when this is going to be published? Well, oddly enough, uh, what I did is uh, because Shots in the Dark took me so long, and and, and trust me, I, I faced a lot of a lot of pressure from family and friends who knew it was in the works. That you know, hurry up, we want to read it. Hurry up, and uh, and you know, seven eight years uh, in the process, to, they're all uh, uh, happy that it's over. I guess. Um, so what I've done is I I have a little app on my phone. Uh, it's a, it counts down things, and I set a deadline for myself of 18 months to have this next book done, and I'm gonna hopefully stick with that. Well, after eight years writing the first one, giving yourself 18 months is kind of putting the pressure on. <laughs> well, I work well under deadlines. As, you, as I mentioned, as yeah. a newspaper writer, I, I get quite a few deadlines from, from my assorted editors that I work for. And, um, you know, with a newspaper, editors are pretty strict, um, and I do follow those deadlines. Um, 
So I'm going to I'm going to treat this as uh, there's somebody out there that that wants this book on a specific date, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to do everything I can to meet that date. Great. Well, it sounds like a wonderful story. And so you're you're are you going to kind of stick with the true crime genre in in the future? Do you see other books following? Yeah, potentially. I have a few things uh, on the back burner. A, a few discussions I've had with people over the years um, while writing Shots in the Dark has has triggered uh, potential storytelling, um, and I'm keeping those available to myself. The you know the, the primary purpose of this book, this first one, uh, was never to. I don't know how to put this the right way, but I I wasn't in it to make a profit. What I was in it to do was to tell Rocco Bolero's story once I learned it. Um, as you as you read, um, Rocco Bolero was instrumental in saving several lives. Uh, there are people walking the planet today that likely wouldn't have been um, had it not been for him. So for every detractor who says to me, you know, you, you wrote this story about a, a murder or a criminal, whatever it may be, uh, my first, you know, course of defense is to say, uh, Rocco saved three lives, and how many people do you know that can do that, that can, that can claim that? Um, there's, a, there's a girl, well, actually a woman, who lives in San Francisco today who has three children, and she was nearly, uh, she nearly drowned. And if it wasn't for Rocco's quick actions, uh, she might have died at the age of two. And needless to say, her children today would not have existed. Um, there's a prison corrections officer uh, who's alive today as a result of Rocco rescuing him from sure, certain death during a prison riot at Walpole. Um, so, you know, uh, this is why I wrote the book. I wanted to tell... The, Obviously, there's a darker side of Rocco Bolero because of what he did for a living and the people he mixed with, but there's also uh, a a lot of good in this man, and um, I I was glad to be able to tell that, to share that story. It really makes us think as readers that even though people make conscious decisions to do bad things, it doesn't necessarily make them evil. It doesn't make them bad to the core, that there's always a glimmer of goodness or a glimmer of hope uh, within that person, no matter who they are or what they've done. And I think your telling of these stories and, and bringing those instances to light paints a different picture. Not that Not that I'm soft on criminals, because that's not the truth, but when you're looking at things from a humanitarian standpoint, we're all human and we're all subject to making those bad decisions, whatever they might be for, for greed or gain or, or prestige, whatever it is, we're, we're prone to make bad decisions in our lives. And I'm, I'm glad that, I'm glad that you brought that part of it up because yes, there's even in, in the worst of people, there is something good. I, I 100% agree with you. Well, our time is almost over already. Like I told you off air, this hour goes by so quickly, but I don't want to leave without letting listeners know where they could get the book. Well, probably the best thing to do would, would be go uh, to go to Amazon. Um, that seems to be where all of my friends, family, and colleagues are, are uh, purchasing the book. Um, 
you could either search Shots in the Dark um, or my name, Daniel Zimmerman, and uh, the book comes up as one of the first uh, options on Amazon.com. And do you do you have a website, Daniel? Do you have a place where maybe people can get um, signed copies? Um, what I can do is I, I, I don't have a website yet. I'm still developing some of my author materials, social media-wise. Um, but I could provide my uh, email address, um, and if, if a prospective um, buyer wants to reach out to me, I'll be glad to sign a copy and send it to them. It's um, uh, Fast Runner, uh, F like Fox, S like Sam, T Tom, R like Robert, U like Umbrella, and like Nancy, R like Robert. So it's F-S-T-R-U-N-R at AOL.com. And, again, I'll, I'll respond to anybody's email and, and arrange uh, to have a signed copy sent out to them. Are you doing some, maybe some local or regional uh, book signings, bookstores? Yeah, as a matter, yes, uh, definitely. As a matter of fact, I, um, this, I was talking with my publisher yesterday about that. Uh, we've ordered a supply of the books, and once they arrive, um, I've got a series of area libraries. I'm going to start small. Uh, the town I live in is, is kind of tiny, but they do have a library, and uh, I'm uh, I actually um, will be announcing it on um, what we call our community uh, web um, community Facebook page, and it has 5,000 members. So there'll be some people that will see it, and hopefully come visit me at the library. And I'm also talking with some other uh, managers of area uh, Barnes and Noble stores about making an appearance and doing some signings. Uh, so that's in the uh, that's in the early stages, but over the weeks ahead, uh, it'll it'll definitely accelerate. Sounds great, and I, I can't thank you enough for bringing this book to me um, and, and allowing me to read it and to talk with you about it because it was a really fascinating story, and just the life that Rocco Bolero led was is something that you know you see on TV or you see in the movies that, and this this is actually the real life story. I, I appreciate you being here with me today, Dan, and I wish you all the greatest success with this. Um, and I also want to thank everyone at Wild Blue Press for introducing us and for pushing your career along. I think uh, you're in very, very good hands. Is there are there any other tidbits, anything else that you would like listeners to know before we sign off? No, I appreciate the uh, the time you've given me, Delilah. It's um, been very uh, enjoyable. Uh, at first, I was a little, obviously, I had a tendency to be nervous, but uh, once you once you lit the fuse, uh, I was off and running. And uh, and I hope I uh, <laughs> hope hopefully I shared the story the way uh, readers will uh, would have expected me to. Well, it's been a great conversation, um, as always. So, as we leave today, I just have one message: is to go out there in this world, and just be kind to each other. Stay safe.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.